As Andre mentioned this morning, we begin an Advent series that I'm calling The Questions of Christmas. Of course, Christmas, the Christmas season is full of questions. There are questions pertaining to, um, to our friends and family, for, for example. With whom shall we celebrate and for whom shall we buy gifts? Uh, Questions pertaining to our budget. How much shall we spend? Questions pertaining to our calendar. When shall we schedule this or that? And with so much going on, with all these well-intentioned questions... It's easy to miss the questions that matter most. Why does Christmas exist, for, for instance? And to whom does it point? Many people, many people, many people, myself included, many people love Christmas, but some seem to miss Christ along the way. And so I wonder, are we asking the right questions? So for this reason, I I want to consider over the next four weeks four main questions that when asked and answered biblically help to clarify the Christmas message and identify the Christ we celebrate. Four questions, each taken from the Bible directly, that move us beyond the season's peripherals to true and lasting joy in God that endures long past the season itself. Questions that help us to glorify God and and even to gaze upon His Son. The first of these questions was asked long before Christmas came. Long before Bethlehem, before the shepherds and wise men, before the manger, before Mary and Joseph, before the angels broke out in song, long before the eternal Son of God assumed human flesh and form, long before He was born into the world, even before the prophets told about Him, long before any of these things, a key question was posed. In the very beginning... In the Garden of Eden, a fundamental Christmas question was asked. Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit. Sin had entered the world. And God himself, here in Genesis 3, after speaking first to the man, turned to the woman and asked, What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? And this question gets to the very heart of Christmas and will, in fact, reveal the very heart of God. For as great as our fall was and is, the grace of God is greater still. So this morning, I just want to consider two things mainly. First, our fall from glory and then God's glorious grace. Our fall from glory and God's glorious grace. 
to fully celebrate Christmas and grasp its true meaning, we must begin here at the beginning. What happened here in Eden? And what did Adam and Eve, in fact, do? And what does it mean for us today? Here we observe five things, five things that describe their fall and ours. Number one, they believed a lie. We learn that Satan, who came in the form of a serpent, called the character of God into question, God's trustworthiness in particular. In verse 1 he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he speaks to Eve, but Adam is there too, as verse 6 alludes. Both are present. And when Eve acknowledged that eating from the tree would bring death, the devil persisted in his attack on God, saying in verses 4 and 5, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How subtle are Satan's schemes. God is holding you back, Eve. He's keeping you from enjoyment and and greater enlightenment. He's lying to you. You cannot trust Him. You will not die. Eat, both of you, and you will live, for you will be like God. But they were as much like God as God intended them to be. They were wonderfully made in God's image, in the very image of God himself. They were created by God for relationship with God, and this was their great dignity and delight. God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, and he walked with Adam there. Picture that. They enjoyed time together. I I just picture as a father might play sports with his son, like teaching him how to throw or catch. I imagine God teaching Adam how to work the garden. Eve, she also shared in God's work of creation. She and Adam were told to be fruitful and multiply, but Adam could never conceive or carry a child, that distinct honor, the joy and privilege of bringing life into the world was for Eve only, for the woman only. God created them both, but each bore a different aspect of his divine image, even as we do today in our various giftings and callings. Created by God, but never to be God never to be God. We are to walk with God, relate with God, enjoy God, and enjoy God's abundant blessings. God had said to Adam, you may eat of any tree in the garden. It's all yours, Adam. Enjoy. It's all yours. Any pomegranate, any berry, any melon, any fruit or vegetable that you so desire, anything that Adam wanted, they were all there at his disposal with just one exception, just one tree among the many that God excluded. Anything you'd like, Adam, anything, just trust me. 
and honor me by refraining from just that one tree. All too often we jump to the wrong conclusion about God. Sin has made us cynical and skeptical. We think God is holding us back, keeping good things from us, when in fact He has blessed us with good things in abundance, has He not? I mean, did we not just this last Thursday sit around Thanksgiving tables to celebrate and enjoy God's abundant goodness toward us? God was lavish, generous with Adam, with Eve, and yet the devil focused on the one thing God prohibited instead of the thousand things he provided. He called God's character into question and deceived the woman while Adam stood nearby, complicit in the exchange. So together, they believed a lie. Number two, they chose their way over God's. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, verse 6, and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There were countless trees. There were countless trees in that garden, good for food. He could have looked in any direction and found food in ample supply and delightful to the eyes. This was paradise, after all. Everything was as God had perfectly created it to be. These were ideal conditions. The soil was rich and fertile. The food that came from it was undoubtedly more nutritious, more delicious, more desirable than any we have ever tasted. It wasn't that the forbidden fruit was better for food or more delightful to the eyes. That's not what attracted them most. No, it was that this tree was, to said, was said to make one wise. This tree, this tree offered something the others didn't. The opportunity for self-gain. And so for the first time ever, humanity pursued its own way at the expense of God's. We pursued our own glory over His. It's the essence of sin. Choosing our way over God. Sin is essentially willing our will as opposed to His. Had they chosen God's way, they would have aligned with God's good and perfect will. But in choosing their way, they aligned with a will that was not only deceitful, but also destructive. God 
created us for worship. What happened at the fall, however, was that we began to worship lesser things, and this false worship has continued down through the ages. Romans 1 describes it, describes this downward spiral by saying that in claiming to be wise, we became fools. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere images. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worshiped and served the creation rather than the Creator Himself. We have to realize that failure to worship God does not mean we cease to worship, just that we worship something else. Something never intended to be worshipped, and therefore something that can never truly satisfy our souls. Maybe it's people. Maybe they're the object of our supreme delight. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's appearances, how we appear before others. Maybe it's this unbridled ambition for more. For us, the forbidden fruit may look different than it did then, but our fall is just as pronounced. For the scripture says that all have fallen and fall short of the glory of God. So the great tragedy here, the great tragedy in all of this is not simply that we've become disobedient boys and girls, naughty little boys and girls who just need to do better. No, it's that we've fallen from our great destiny, which was glory divine. Created by God to glory in God, our first parents chose their way over God's, and we have all followed suit. Number three, made aware of their guilt, they respond in self-effort. Self-effort. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Well, earlier in chapter 2, they were naked and without shame. But in choosing their way over God's, their eyes were opened to a whole new world of sin and guilt. They were exposed and ashamed like never before. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're trying to cover themselves so we have to just see how their self their pursuit of self-glory led to self-reliance it's no small thing sin brought guilt but instead of coming clean before God instead of acknowledging their wrongdoing they tried to mask it in self-effort it's our first attempt at, at self-righteousness, our first efforts at trying to make ourselves right and whole again. But self-effort never draws us closer to God, never draws us closer to God. It only pushes us farther away. Therefore, number four, they hid from God in fear of God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, verse 8, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
never before had they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Previously, they rejoiced to hear God. They rejoiced to be with God. They rejoiced in God. And now they're hiding from God. How pathetic to see them darting behind trees as if God wouldn't find them. How sad that sin had broken their once unhindered enjoyment of Him. That's what sin does. Sin destroys relationship always and separates us from God and others. Sin destroys relationship always and separates us from God and others. But I just want you to notice how God drew them out. He could have wiped them out. From the dust he made Adam, and from Adam's rib he fashioned Eve. So it's just a word he could have ended them entirely, but he didn't. Instead, through a series of questions, he mercifully drew them out from hiding and stepping out from the trees and facing the Lord for the first time as a guilty sinner. Adam Adam states in verse 10, I heard the sound of you, God. I was afraid of you, God, because I was naked and I hid myself. I was exposed, God. I was aware of my guilt. I tried to cover myself, but the guilt remained, so I hid in fear. And I just have to ask, because I cannot help but wonder if there might be someone among us this morning, maybe just one, someone among us this morning who is hiding from God as Adam did. Maybe you're ashamed and you're avoiding him or you're trying to. Or you're, you're afraid in thinking that he only waits to crush you. Maybe that's you. Maybe the sin that stands between you and the Lord has caused you to hide in fear of him. And the relationship you were created to enjoy is broken. And you know it. And so you run. But mercifully... Graciously, God is calling you forth. Where are you? He's asking. Even right now, even this morning, will you not step out from your hiding? For we are not released from sin and shame until we admit it and return to God in repentance. Lost in their sin, Adam and Eve hid from God in fear of God. But sadly, number five, they denied ownership of their sin. Instead of true sorrow, there is shifting of blame. 
happens all the time still today. It's never my fault, never my fault. It's always theirs or theirs or theirs or theirs or theirs. So Adam said to the woman, or Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice that both admitted to eating, but neither accepted responsibility. Adam blamed Eve and ultimately blamed God for giving him Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, but there's no contrition, it seems, no apparent confession or repentance, no ownership of their sin. God had asked, what is this that you have done? And this was their answer. They had believed a lie. They chose their way over God's. They relied on self-effort. They hid in fear, and they refused to take ownership of their sin, making Genesis 3, the fall, the most devastating account in the history of the human race, for the repercussions of that original sin are still known and felt today. Sin still runs its course and affects us all. Sin brings death. Think with me for a moment. Were we to total the number of deaths from all the wars ever fought in the history of the world? The death that results from Eden outnumbers them all by an infinite degree. Were we to consider the many diseases that have taken countless lives over time from all history in places all over the globe, the plague, polio, smallpox, uh, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, uh, cancer in its many forms, the death toll from Eden is immeasurably more. Adam lived 930 years, but died in sin in that one fateful moment. In pursuit of self-centered aims, his once unbroken and perfect communion with God Perished as did Eve's, as did ours. As their descendants, we are each diseased in this way. Like a child born infected by AIDS or addicted to drugs, we are each born infected and addicted to sin. In lusting after the deadly fruit, they lost the place and privilege they were created to enjoy, and so have we. This is sin's continual deception, promising delight, but delivering death instead. I want to, I want to read for you a, a quote from J.I. Packer. It's lengthy, it's about a paragraph, but it's well worth it. Packer says, to say that our first need in life, to say that our first need in life. So 
Let's pause. If you had to, just answer among yourself, to yourself, what is my first need in life? Packer says to say that our first need in life is to learn about sin may sound strange. But it is profoundly true. If you've not learned about sin, you cannot understand yourself or your fellow men or the world you live in or the Christian faith, and you will not be able to make heads or tails of the Bible. For the Bible is an exposition of God's answer to the problem of human sin. And unless you have that problem clearly before you, you will keep missing the point of what it says. Apart from the first two chapters of Genesis, which set the stage, the real subject, hear this, the real subject of every chapter of the Bible is what God does about our sin. That's the good news. So we've talked about our fall from glory. What about God's glorious grace? God has done something on our behalf. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And even in Eden, God was unbelievably gracious. Consider this with me. God was gracious with them in that he held them accountable And he gave them consequences for their sin. For if there are no consequences to sin, we'd never turn from it. We'd never return to God. And their consequences, notice, were commensurate with their callings. The pain of childbirth would be greatly multiplied for Eve, while the ground that Adam worked would be harder to work. But listen, the ground would still bear fruit. That's grace. And Eve would still bear children. That's grace. And Though she and Adam lost the paradise of unobstructed fellowship with God, God was gracious with them, even in judgment, even by sending them out of the garden. By guarding the tree of life, God was graciously protecting them. For if they were to eat fruit from that tree they would have lived forever in their fallen state. Grace. And God was gracious in His provision for them. He came to them. He comforted them. He he covered them in His grace. We read in verse 21. It was God who clothed Adam and his wife Eve. It was God who took animal skins and made garments of grace for this guilty pair. It was God who provided for them in their sin. The first recorded instance of God Himself offering sacrifice for sin. The point is that God did not give up on them. He was gracious in His judgment, gracious in His provision, and gracious in His promise. From the fall itself, God promised a Savior. There, in the darkness of sin and death, even there we see the first light of salvation and hear of the promised Savior. To the devil, God 
declared in verse 15, He, Jesus, the Savior, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This is talking about how Jesus would one day triumph over the devil and, and actually destroy the works of the devil. Years past, decades, centuries, millennia, sin and its fatal effects just spread rampant, ran rampant. Prophecies concerning the Messiah were given and studied, over 300 of them in the Old Testament. People longed for the Savior, and when He finally came, we read of it like this in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Or, or 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. The word refers to an offering that turns away God's just wrath. His holy wrath. Specifically, His wrath towards sin. In other words, God sent His Son Jesus to be the sin offering that would turn away His wrath toward us. Christ's birth, therefore, not only looks back to Eden, but simultaneously looks forward to Calvary. Christmas is much more than the baby Jesus. Many children were born, I suspect, that day of Christ's birth, but only one was born to save. Only one, only Jesus, was born to be the Savior. So in Eden, we learn, of this, we learn that the Savior would one day crush the serpent's head, and at Calvary, He does just that. In Eden, by the love of God, Christ was promised. In Bethlehem, by the love of God, Christ was born. And at Calvary, by the love of God, Christ died, promised from the beginning. Jesus was born to die for sin, not His own, for He was and is without sin. No, He was offered for our sins and endured to death the punishment that was ours. And He rose from the dead. And He grants life to any and all who place their trust in Him. Any and all who place their trust in Him are redeemed from sin and restored to God just as it was intended before the fall. What is this you have done? God asked. What is this you have done? In your sin you believe a lie. You question God and, and question His character, His goodness. You choose your way over His. You rely upon self-effort. You hide from God. 
and you refuse to take ownership, placing blame elsewhere, even with God himself, you fall far short of the glory of God. And apart from personal faith in Christ, you are separated from him and dead in your sin. But thankfully, Christmas is not primarily about you or what you have done, but about God and what God has done for you. For as great as our fall was and is, the grace of God is greater still. And so this Advent, this season, this time of the year where we celebrate that Christ has come, would you come to Christ? For some, it means turning from sin, first time, confessing it, and returning to God in repentance and full submission. For others, probably for most of us, it means returning to Christ again and again, just to enjoy, to receive and enjoy fullness and full relationship with God forevermore. Not stepping back, but stepping forward to Christ. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. God, thank you for, the, for speaking to us and impressing your word upon our hearts. And I would pray specifically for any in the room who have not come to place their trust in Christ. They may know the story. They may know it very well. They may know the gospel, the facts of the gospel. They may know it very well. They may have been in church for years. They may have been coming to this church for years, but they have never turned from going their way to go yours instead. I pray, Father, would you grant them grace and the faith to believe and to entrust their lives to Christ. And then for the rest of us, Father, we know how easy, we all know how easy it is to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season. And I pray that amidst it all, God, would you help us to rejoice in the Lord himself and enjoy life with you forevermore. We thank you through Christ. Amen.